0: This podcast is funded and supported by Wild Common, an additive-free agave spirits company bringing you some of the finest tequila and mezcal on earth. Our goal is to help give transparency to the consumer, provide a cleaner spirit, and support sustainable methods of production with the families that we work with in Mexico. Our products should be available summer 2020. We will keep you posted. Salud. Welcome to episode 7. Of the Wild Common Podcast. My name is Andy Barden, the founder of Wild Common Agave Spirits and the host of the podcast. Today's episode is Brian scary. Brian is a photojournalist specializing in marine wildlife and underwater environments. He fell in love with the sea as a child growing up in New England while taking family trips to the icy green waters of the Atlantic. I caught up with him remotely from his place in Maine to have this conversation. Since 1998, he's been a contributing photographer for National Geographic magazine, and he's published over 20 feature stories for the magazine, as well as contributing to numerous others. He's a 10-time award winner in the Wildlife Photographer of the Year competition in London, among too many other industry awards to count. Brian has addressed the United Nations General Assembly, given TED Talks and lectures about ocean conservation. While on assignment in September of 2016, He photographed President Barack Obama snorkeling in the waters of the Midway Atoll in the Pacific Ocean, helping to solidify Obama's decision to create marine reserves. We talk about this story and get some really funny insight from Brian, some behind-the-scenes info. It's pretty cool. After speaking with Brian, I realized his passion and his drive aren't waning, not even close. He sees many more stories that need to be told in the future and realizes his calling is to protect the Earth's most biodiverse resource. Please enjoy this conversation with one of the finest underwater photographers on the planet, Brian Scary. All right, Brian Scary, welcome to the show.
1: Great to be here. Thanks.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for taking the time today. Hey, I, I wanted to start off uh, with a quote that you gave in one of your speeches somewhere on in the interweb saying that 98 percent. Of the habitable planet on Earth, where animals can live as the ocean, yet only five percent of the oceans have truly been explored. Is that sort of exploration of the unknown what drives you and your work today?
1: Yeah, uh, that's a really great question, Andy, and and it is. um, You know, I I, actually to drill down a little bit more on that quote. I think it's actually something like only about three percent of Earth's oceans have been protected. And yet it is uh, on our planet, on planet Earth, 98% of the biosphere where life can exist is water, is ocean. So, you know, when you consider that every other breath that a human being takes comes from the ocean, you know, more than 50% of the oxygen we breathe. In some estimates, it's even much higher than that. So no matter where you live on Earth, you are directly connected to the ocean, and yet um, such a small fraction is protected and we really don't know that much about it. Something like 95% remains unexplored, particularly the deep ocean. So, um, so yeah, that is a big motivation for me.
0: And that sort of limitless exploration, um, you know, provides you a a new canvas every time you go out. Um, how do you, how do you choose the subjects or stories that you want to shoot? What does that process look
1: like? Mm, You know, um, I would say that the the process is really sort of in two buckets, right? Um, One is the animals or places that that I'm interested in, places in which I I am fascinated. So, uh, you know, I might have done stories on uh, squid in the past because I was interested in cephalopods. I, I just think they're cool animals or on great white sharks or... Oceanic white tip sharks or whales or whatever, just because I think they're they're cool animals. But but obviously you know you you can't, especially with National Geographic these days. There might have been a time where just because it was a cool animal, you could do a subject or a story rather. But today there has to be some relevance. Um, so it's got to be a little bit more than that. And and the other bucket is sort of you know these issues that I have just come to. Understand better that I think need to be told. So, you know, there's sort of been this trajectory, this evolution in my work in the sense that in the beginning I just did stories about things that interested me, but along the way I saw, saw a lot of problems occurring in the world's oceans that I didn't think most folks knew about. So I feel compelled. Um, to tell those stories as well, there's a sense of urgency and a sense of responsibility for me to do that. So, some is if, issue driven by things that I think are important that need to be told, and others are just things that you know might be interesting science or or um, natural history behavior that I think is, is would make a good story.
0: And would you say that the the two years you spent documenting the global fisheries uh, for National Geographic? Graphic is an example of a story that had to be told to bring awareness to consumers about uh, what that supply chain looks like. And
1: yeah, uh, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, that was a story that at the time, you know, when I proposed that, it was, I think, about 2004 when I proposed that to the editors at National Geographic. And, you know, in my mind, most of the underwater stories that the magazine had done, you know, for decades had been sort of exploratory or exploration stories and and natural history stories showing the beauty of the ocean and so forth, which, of course, is is essential. But, you know, this was one of the first, if not maybe the first, story where we were going to start looking at these really big issues, you know, things like 90% of the big fish in the ocean having been removed due to commercial industrialized overfishing. And, you know, we're killing 100 million sharks every year. And for every pound of shrimp we eat, there might be 12 or 15 pounds of other animals that die in the process and are thrown back into the ocean as trash. So certainly not a story that was fun to work on. But, you know, I was obviously inspired by photographers who were doing that kind of stuff terrestrially, you know, working on land and um felt that the ocean was a place that needed to be um, talked about, too.
0: And it seems like you made a point to include some of those grittier images. Um, Specifically, there's a a shot of a fisherman holding about six shrimp in his hands. Um, In in both hands, he's got six shrimp, and then he's got 10 or 15 pounds of bycatch underneath him, just um, animals that inevitably get dumped back into the ocean just so he can you know they don't have commercial value. Um, was it your intention to set out and show some of those grittier images to show the reality of of sort of the global food chain?
1: Yeah, it was. Um, you know, I, I sort of, uh, of course, love just photographing happy pictures, right? I love to just celebrate nature. But before I I began that process, before I went into the field on on this story. Um, I sort of tried to develop a mindset of a conflict photographer. You know, I I looked at the the great war photographers over the years and and said, this is more how I think this needs to be treated, um, that what I want to try to document are things that most people wouldn't know about. It's not on our radar. You know, people go to a restaurant and they order a shrimp dinner, and most people have no or, or or why would they even think about where that necessarily comes from? But to, to understand that, yeah, for every every handful of shrimp, there's another 15 pounds of animals that die that have no commercial value and are thrown back into the sea as trash. That's that to me was important. So I did want to. Approach it in a very different way it wasn't going to be a a, you know pretty underwater celebratory story it was going to be much more issue-based and reportage and um and and that was um that was and and ended up being the result
0: and then there there also seemed to be a balance though where you um you also chose to position some of these say sushi fishes like hero images to make them really beautiful and to elicit sort of a, a sense of respect or awe from the viewer? Was that also intentional?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, before I set out, and uh, again, most of the stories I do for the magazine are, are my ideas. And when I wrote this proposal, um, I, I acknowledged the fact that this was a complex issue, uh, complex issue, and that in one article, in one story, we're probably never going to address every aspect of it, of course. But there were sort of four major components or a few major components um, that I hoped to achieve. And, and the first was, yeah, to you know, treat it more like conflict photography to show what was happening to marine wildlife around the planet because in many cases when we're eating seafood, um, it's wildlife that's being harvested. It's not like other forms of agriculture. So that was sort of one key foundation component. But another one was... To Do what I called putting a face on seafood and and again, it's because you know when we go to a restaurant and and somebody orders uh, a steak and we know where steak comes from, and somebody orders chicken and we know what a chicken is, but if you're eating bluefin tuna sushi um, i I wondered how many people had any appreciation for what those animals are, you know they're they're magnificent creatures, they've been called the lions and tigers of the sea, but which is a, a lovely description, but in reality, they have no terrestrial counterpart. They are unique in the world. It is an animal that continues to grow its entire life. You know, if we weren't so efficient at catching them. There'd be 30-year-old bluefin out there that weigh a ton, but they don't get anywhere near that big these days because we're way too good at catching them. And they can generate heat in their body. And because of that, they can swim from the equator almost to the poles in search of their prey. They crisscross the ocean in the course of the year. So I wanted to show these animals as something magnificent, Um, And again, not trying to be preachy, not saying don't eat this or don't eat that, but, you know, let people have information, you know, an informed consumer um, is very important in the equation. So, yeah, that was another key component.
0: And do you think that that awareness that you're creating through a combination of those grittier images, as well as these, these hero shots that creates, you know, awe and wonder, um, what, what impact has that awareness had? I mean, do you mm-hmm. think that there it's it's sort of a increased consciousness, uh increased connection to the natural world or or has there actually been action taken because of some of these images?
1: Uh, you know, it's probably a little of all of the above, but you know, one one example that immediately comes to mind was when when I brought back those pictures uh, or submitted them to National Geographic, my editor Kathy Moran who I've worked with for two decades, um, you know, she loved to eat shrimp, and she was cursing me. She said, "You know, I can never eat shrimp again now," and and she hasn't, you know, to this day, as far as I know, she hasn't she hasn't gone back. Um, and that was a, a conscious choice, right, that she made because she she felt it, and and she. You know, one of those people, of course, that once you know something, you can't unknow it or you can't unsee it. And there may be people who don't get phased by that. But um, but many of us, of course, when we learn about things that we never knew, you know, we were sort of uh, fat, dumb and happy, right? We're going through life and it's all good and we're doing things that we don't realize uh, are having a negative impact on our planet. And then when we learn about it, we say, damn, you know, I, I just can't do that anymore, um, so there's there was definitely that and and I, I've actually gotten that a lot I actually did a, a a talk I've done a couple of talks at the United Nations um, but the first one I did was for something called the social good forum as part of um, of of the United Nations and it was during like UN week um, a few years ago and I was on stage right before Alec Baldwin and when I came backstage before they introduced Alec, he uh, he chatted with me backstage, and he says, thanks, Brian, you know, I'll, I'll never be able to eat shrimp again. So it was the same as Kathy, you know, it was that same sort of realization that, oh, there's another thing that I can't do or eat. And, and I've certainly done that in my own life. So I think it's, it's definitely had impact on the number of individuals. Those are just two random examples. But um, I, I get that sort of... Um, Sentiment from a lot of people <clears throat> after my uh, speaking engagements—they come up and say I had no idea—and um, and I won't be able to do that anymore. So, yeah, I think it—you it, know—how how you measure that, I, I don't think we can. But but it certainly has, has has influenced some folks.
0: And then on a on an even larger macro scale, has some of that work been used or been pivotal pivotal in in passing legislation to help conservation efforts?
1: Yes. Um, you know, I I've done um, a number of stories that have influenced um, legislation, perhaps. And again, I, I I don't take credit for that in the sense that no piece of legislation, at least none that I'm aware of, is is going to be enacted or or passed uh, because of any one factor. Usually, uh, you know, maybe with the, with the recent. Um, you know, COVID um, $2 trillion uh, package that went through. That was one issue, but or multiple issues, I guess, related to one thing. But, um, but yeah, you know, so with, with the global fishery story, I remember being on the phone after that um, with senators. I was on the phone with a Republican senator, Ted Stevens, uh, from, from Alaska, and various members of the House, uh, congressional members that were looking to uh, – you know, sort of change the way we do things in this country. I I honestly don't know if if that actually happened, but I know that they were certainly looking at it. I had gotten an invitation to the White House. That was back in the Bush years. Um, Another story that I did on on a place called Kingman Reef, which was owned by the United States. It's actually about 1,200 miles south of Hawaii, and uh, it's this very remote, beautiful, rather pristine um, coral reef ecosystem that, Became a national, uh, or became a protected place, a marine reserve, uh, by the Bush administration in the you know, late days of, of, of their administration, in um, due part, in part to the fact that they took that story in uh uh, some scientists brought that story in and showed it to the white house and said you know this belongs to america it's a beautiful place it's unique and it really should be protected so they they protected it um you know i did a story on on the most endangered whales in the world uh, the north atlantic right whale back in 2008 and um it, you know, this is an animal that has never recovered from the pre-whaling days because it's an urban whale and it it swims up and down the east coast of the United States and Canada and it gets entangled in fishing gear and and uh, hit by ships, um, really struggling even to this day. But, but back at that time, there had been some legislation introduced into Congress that I was told had been sort of languishing. It just was sort of on the back burner. But after the story came out, it got moved to the forefront and... Um, was passed and, and helped uh, slow down ship speed in critical habitat, places like off of Florida where moms and calves hang out in the wintertime or where they're born, uh, the calves are. So, you know, again, it, it's not just because of that article that these things might have happened, but I think they it, it plays a role in the in the bigger equation.
0: And when you're speaking to the General Assembly at the UN, I mean, you're, you're addressing um, the collective... Sort of uh, human population here to to help promote sustainability in regards to fishing and uh, overfishing and overconsumption are there efforts being made collectively on on that level between multiple nations to help promote sustainability in our oceans
1: there, there are um, you know we, we we open this this discussion um, in talking about a quote that I often cite in my in my speaking engagements, where I say that 98 of of Earth's biosphere, where life can exist, is ocean, and yet only a, a small fraction has been pr- uh, protected. And um, one of the things that we've seen, you know, in recent years, has been that um, there's been, for lack of a better analogy, almost a, a, an arms race with many countries creating marine protected areas. Now, we're, we're still you know, uh, dismal uh, in terms of where we need to be. You know, most scientists would say we need to protect maybe 40% of Earth's oceans, particularly key uh, dynamic zones that are productive in order to have a healthy future. So if we're only at about 3% today, um, we have a long way to go. But when I did that global fisheries story, and in the same issue, I did a story on the value of marine reserves and how the ocean could be resilient. But when I did that story, we were only at about 1%. So we've, we've maybe tripled, depending on how you look at the numbers, um, where we were in 2007 over the last few years. And that's due in part to many of these small Pacific island nations and bigger nations as well, particularly in the Pacific, who have sort of recognized their value In terms of their EEZ, their Exclusive Economic Zone, so they've been able to realize that they have a big footprint, even though they may be small island nations, that they can create these large marine protected areas. And if each of them does that, then they sort of overlap and you create this giant Pacific Ocean seascape much of which is protected. So, you know, it might start with New Zealand, a, a bigger country, but then you've got countries like Kiribati and Palau and all these other places that are doing it, and collectively they are working together to, to do something very important. And, you know, keep in mind, too, that many of these small nations were never really given a seat at the table at the, at the really big events in, in United Nations history or in world politics, but today they, they carry a lot of weight. And what they do and and part of their reason for doing that is because they've recognized um, the severity of these threats of climate change you know I had dinner with the president of Kiribati a number of years ago in in San Francisco and you know he was one of the first countries to create many of these big um, marine protected areas but he was also one of the first countries to be buying land in other countries to relocate his people um, he, he was already seeing sea level rise that was, you know, washing into the churches and their, their capital city of Tarawa. And he realized that in, in no time at all, their country would be lost. So he had to buy land and, and sort of take care of the people. And I think they, being on the front lines, recognize that ahead of some of the rest of us.
0: And are, are some of these climate refugees, you know, essentially motivated to help preserve these marine protected areas? If there's economic incentive, or are they doing it because they are seeing overfishing occur?
1: Well, it's it's both. Uh, that's a really good analysis, and um, you know the devil is always in the details, and and you know the the real world on the ground um, politics um, do sometimes get in the way. I think you know in in some of these cases, you have visionary leaders who, who recognize what's happening and they understand a solution. They, they know what we need to do, or at least do what we can to try to mitigate the damage. That being said, you know, if, if a small country out in the middle of the Pacific uh, has very little revenue coming in, and one of their main sources of revenue is from selling fishing rights to foreign fleets who are coming in and, and fishing for tuna or other fish, that's that's not an easy thing for them to just you know with a stroke of a pen get rid of only because they realize it, it might be doing damage to the ocean. I mean, it's a very hard decision. So, in some of these cases, what has happened is you've you've got you know NGOs coming in and saying, "Well, we will pay you to not." fish or not sell those licenses, a reverse fishing license, if you will, um, and try to create endowments through philanthropic donations and whatever other means in order to essentially give them the same amount of money to not allow other countries in to fish. Um, and, you know, and again, it, it gets a little muddy. There's enforcement and, and, you know, are they doing it in some places and not in others? So it's it's by no means perfect, but but th- those are some of the situations uh the models that I'm aware of and and um, you know, I think they do work but but it may not be perfect
0: and in, is it an all or nothing scenario where um, it's an all-encompassing marine protected area there's no commercial fishing period, or are you finding that there's a balance where local fishermen can have mm-hmm. designated areas and and then they still set aside a marine protected area to help? Promote both the enumeration and the biodiversity of the fish, which, of course, would trickle over into these uh, non-protected regions as well. Is there yeah. is there a balance? Another,
1: another great question. You you know your stuff here. Um, yes, absolutely. There are balances, and and in fact, you know, um, some of my colleagues, uh, of, uh, folks that I work with, scientists um, have actually switched in some respects from from calling these things marine. Protected areas or marine reserves, and and instead calling them marine managed areas (MMAs) as opposed to an MPA, and and part of that thinking in in terms of the nomenclature is is that they they don't have to be a, a lockbox that that nobody can ever go into. I mean, there there is an argument for that, particularly in some places, but there are. Um, Shades of gray along the way, or variations on the theme, and you can definitely do what you just said, and that is to to have a place that is perhaps protected, certainly from outside uh, fishing fleets, commercial, you know, factory trawlers and stuff coming in. But you can have smaller local artisanal fishermen going out, or even with the the local fishermen, there are seasons, right? So you you can have a situation where. We know that there are spawning grounds where fish will spawn in big aggregations, in big numbers at certain times of the year, and those would be. You know, historically times when the fishermen might go out and, and gather all the fish, but that's the worst possible scenario because you're, you're taking the fish either before or as they are spawning and, and procreating. So better to let them do that, and you have more fish for the future, but then at other months of the year you can go and catch some of those fish. Um, there's also transferable quota systems. You know, Iceland with their codfish, they have situations where they've basically given ownership they give licenses to a certain number of uh, fishermen to be able to go out and, and fish for cod, but it's a, it's a quota. And when they reach that quota, they stop. So the price might be a little bit higher because you, the de- the demand is great, but the supply is limited. And you sort of own that license, and you can transfer it to somebody else. But But, you know, you eliminate the tragedy of the commons instead of everybody going out like the Wild West and just taking what they think they should take before somebody else gets it. Now everybody sort of polices each other and says, you know, this, we have to protect this for our future. So I think there are uh, various models that can work. Um, maybe again, none of them are perfect, but but it certainly could be magnitudes greater than what we've seen.
0: And, and we're learning that from, you know, your home waters where the um, enumeration of cod back in the day used to be um, massive and now, it's down to what, 1% of what it, it ought to be?
1: Exactly. Exactly. That's that's a really important statistic. Yeah. I mean, the, these, you know, I grew up in Massachusetts and I live on the coast of Southern Maine now, not that far away from where I started. Um, but these waters, you know, the Gulf of Maine uh, are, are historically um, extremely dynamic and rich. These are waters that fostered uh, colonization in America, you know, back in the 14th, 15th century, uh, fishermen came over and explorers from Europe to mine these waters for that, that codfish gold. And um, it's one of the reasons why we built these empires in, in New England, the codfish aristocracy, the early money in in New England and Massachusetts, uh, it, it had codfish on it. It wasn't in, in God we trust, it was in cod we trust, right? And yet, we fished out 99 percent of them. Your statistic is correct. We are at one percent of colonial levels today, and um, that's tragic. This is a fish that could easily um, vanish. It could go extinct in our lifetime, and um, that that would be you know unimaginable to. Uh, the, the pilgrims who were here in the 1600s. You know, they, there are reports of of uh, schooner captains that couldn't row their dories uh, near Cape Cod because the the codfish was so thick on the surface. They literally couldn't get an oar in the water because there were so many cod, and we've we've taken nearly all of them.
0: So, I mean, does this, you know, being that you're seeing it firsthand, you're seeing um, bycatch, you're seeing these numbers just getting demolished um does this make you depressed
1: yeah well it, yeah it, it absolutely does you know i remember i spent about two years working on that global fishery um story uh back in 2005 and 2006 and it was published in 2007 and i think i became physically depressed i mean it was really bad news everywhere i was going uh I was seeing terrible things, you know, I was seeing gill nets being put in mangroves where they were catching, you know, fish that were two or three inches long, um, you know, babies, every every place, destroying ocean habitat on the bottom, bottom trawlers, you know, effectively clear-cutting um, the benthic regions of so many places around the world, all this stuff happening out of the sight of most people, um, and... The analogies are, are, are horrible. You know, you think about it, it would be like trying to catch a couple of squirrels in the forest by dragging a net through, and and catching all the songbirds and everything else that lives in the forest, and then keeping a few squirrels and then dumping everything in a dumpster. But that's what's happening in Earth's oceans uh, in many fisheries around the world. So it was very depressing. And, and you know, I remember one morning I had, I, had, I was staying at Kathy Moran's house um, in Virginia and Nick Nichols was staying over as well. Nick was, you know, staff photographer who was doing big conservation stories uh, for the magazine on land in places like Africa and so forth. And, I, you know, I hadn't slept much that night. I was just not happy about the whole situation and jet lagged and so forth. And I was having a cup of coffee with Nick and I said, do you ever get depressed, Nick? And he, and he said, man, I I do all the time. But he says, Brian, you're working in the most depressing place on the planet. He says, you know, the oceans are in real trouble. So, yeah, you know, I think we all, any of us that do this stuff, um, absolutely feel that, that heaviness and the despair. But, you know, I, I realized a long time ago, we have two choices, right? We can, we can either give up or we can fight. And I think we, we choose to fight with the the tools that we have available to us with, with truth and science and, and journalism and photography. You know, we are, we are very, visual creatures human beings we respond emotionally sometimes viscerally to to powerful pictures and we can remember a single frame for the rest of our lives and that i believe can change behavior so um sometimes it feels like we're shoveling against the tide and and you know things aren't going our way but you know for my children for the future of 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 all of us um you do what you can
0: and and years ago i remember seeing an image um you got to document a former leader, President Obama, on the Midway Atoll, northwest of Hawaii, way out in the Pacific Ocean. Can you talk about that experience?
1: Yeah that that was um, that was sort of the exact opposite. That was one of those moments in my life where I felt great optimism um, for the planet and, and for the future. So this was a story, um, it was also a cover story in 2017, in February of 2017, with uh, the the um, the deck, the, ha- the headline of Saving Our Oceans. And it was a story that I proposed um, to the magazine using the premise of 2016, which was the centennial anniversary of the National Park Service in the United States. And I wanted to use that opportunity of celebrating the National Park Service after 100 years as a way to look to the future of a blue centennial looking to the future where we're protecting America's oceans. And, you know, to give a little context to that uh, that very first national park that was created, you know, just over a hundred years ago was Yellowstone and Yellowstone was created due in part to a photographer, as you probably well know, uh, living out near there. But, Uh, William Henry Jackson was was a photographer back in the day who accompanied a U.S. geological survey out to that greater Teton ecosystem. And he returned to Washington, D.C. with these big, you know, prints of these magical places, places that many members of Congress thought were just myths. They didn't think it was real. But with that photographic evidence, Jackson was able to convince members of Congress and President Grant at the time to create that first national park, Yellowstone. And, you know, we should make no um, mistake about it that there were opponents to that at the time. There were people who said we don't need to lock up anything or protect anything. It'll be just fine, you know, commercial interests. But today it's been called America's Best Idea, the National Park Service. So, so I wanted to sort of emulate Jackson. And say, I want to go to places in U.S. waters, in America territory, and photograph these beautiful underwater ecosystems that scream out for protection, that really should be protection. It belongs to all of us. So um, the story was approved, and I spent about a year out in various locations, most of which were were not protected and, and wanted to show those to readers. But... I was in touch with the Obama White House throughout that year, and there was a coalition of of um, conservation NGOs along with my team and the folks I was working with at National Geographic, both society and partners, that were providing science and uh, the, my images and, and, and video to the White House to help the president make decisions about what and if he would do. The, the idea had been floated to him. He embraced it. He thought that legacy was going to be good and that there was every indication that he would use the Antiquities Act, um, as his predecessors had done on land, to now protect places in the ocean. So um, I got a call in August of 2016 that Obama was going to expand the existing boundaries that had been created actually by President Bush, uh, George W. Bush. W. Bush in the final days of his administration, he had created a marine protected area up in those northwest Hawaiian islands. Um, And that came about because they showed a film at the White House uh, about that region. And then after there was a dinner and and Dr. Sylvia Earle, a friend of mine, a colleague, um, a great advocate for the ocean, was sitting next to the president and first lady, Laura Bush. And, And she sort of lobbied them to create this place. So they did it. Um, I'm told that um, there was some opposition in in his administration uh, about that and that they ultimately settled on, I think, a 50-mile Boundary that the the marine reserve would be out to 50 miles, but science was showing that the animals that live there, many of these animals, monk seals and seabirds and so forth, actually foraged much further away from from land, and that going out to the full 200 mile limit would be would be really great. So that's what Obama ultimately did in, in on September 1st of 2016. So I got this call. Sylvia and I actually flew out to Midway. Um, the The day before the president was supposed to arrive and we did some snorkeling and I made some pictures and then, you know, I took apart all my equipment and left it in my barracks and in my bunk room there and um, my role the day that he arrived was to photograph Sylvia doing an interview with him on the beach and there was a film being produced about this by uh, Bob and Sarah Nixon called Sea of Hope which debuted on the Nat Geo Channel so i was going to we were characters in the film Sylvia and i and i was just going to be photographing this interview so anyway the the air force 1 lands on the runway there at midway and i'm photographing the president exiting the front part of the plane and the press pool that was traveling with him is exiting the rear of the plane and i feel a hand on my shoulder and it was Pete souza um, obama 's personal photographer, who also was the photographer for President Reagan, but I knew Pete a little bit, and he pulled me aside and he said, Brian, if you got a second he says i I have an invitation um, for you from the president he he 's planning to go snorkeling this afternoon and he 'd like to know if you want to join him so I said, well, yes, I would. <laughs> so, um, But now my mind was racing because I had taken apart all my underwater gear, my housings and the cameras and stuff that I was using for underwater, and they were literally in pieces in my room, my, my barracks. So I jumped in a golf cart, and uh, I raced over to the beach where we were going to do this interview so I could talk to the White House people and, and let them know that I needed to go and get my stuff. Um, Obama had a few other stops before he got to that beach, and they, they – sort of looked at me very quizzically. They didn't believe what I was saying, and they said, well, this is highly unusual, and we don't know anything about it. We'll have to check. And three different times, somebody came back and, and said, uh, um, we can't do it. There's no room for you on the boat. But then when uh, the president arrived, he came out on the beach, and he was putting on his microphone to do the interview. And uh, Pete a very generously, very kindly said, Mr. President, I would like to introduce you to Brian Scarry, the, the world's greatest <laughs> underwater photographer. He was very, very kind. Uh, and, and the president turned around and goes, well, I know who he is, Pete. I'm a great admirer of your work, Brian. And he started talking to me about stories. And, you know, we took some pictures and shook hands. And and then I walked away and somebody from the White House came over and said, they made room for you on the boat. So, uh, <laughs> so I got to go out with him and spend about two and a half hours uh, snorkeling on some of these beautiful reefs. And make yeah, the very first pictures of a US president. So it was extraordinary. I mean he was he's a hell of a swimmer. I, I had a hard time keeping up with him. He's really good in the water. Um, but he was also very curious, you know, I could see him looking at sea cucumbers and sea stars and fish, and we would stop in sandy places and put our masks uh, up on our head. And I would talk to him about, um, the monk seals and, and why it was important about what he did for those animals. But we talked about climate change and, you know, he has two daughters and I had two daughters and how it was important for them. And, uh, so that was, uh, extraordinary on many levels, but I, I left midway, um, flying home, uh, you know, this was September of 2016. Uh, it was a, a couple of months before the election. Um, he not only created that Marine protected area, but he created the very first one in the Atlantic in the new England sea and canyons, um, area of, of new England, which is very important. Um, so I came back home, you know, very elated and, and really feeling good that the, that the, the planet was in good hands that you know th- these people understood it they got it they were doing the right thing to the best of their ability they had to fight their battles and pick their moments but they they were on the right track um and then you know and then the election happened and um many of these places that were protected or you know court cases to try to undo them
0: and and uh, i mean I- you know more than most that the second that you put your eyes you know, you put your mask on, the second you put your eyes underwater and you see the biodiversity in some of these regions, it's so humbling. Yeah. You know, where you're looking at 14, 17 different species all within your field of view as you're swimming around. And I've got to imagine that having that physical experience for the former president helped move that needle.
1: No question. Yeah, no question. Um you know he's he's a, a man of few words, and um, but he, you know he you definitely could see that he was really appreciative of this place. Um, he didn't you know particularly want to hear praise when I said you know. Mr. President, what you did is really important. You know that these animals, the science shows that they're, they they need a bigger boundary, and uh, as you said, the, the diversity um, thrives when when everything is doing well. You know, and he sort of just sloughed that off. He didn't he didn't like acknowledge it. He didn't seek that. Um, but yet, I think you know he clearly was appreciative. We had a. a Uh, Fish and Wildlife Service uh, biologist with us, too, this woman who was very knowledgeable about the the region and the area, and so she spoke about the various things we were seeing. And... um you know, we, we we climbed back on the boat, and um, he was a regular guy. I mean, he he could have easily just. It was a relatively small boat, but he could have just gone inside and you know had a lemonade and relaxed or something. But he he stood in the cockpit and he was grabbing people's. Uh, there were some of his staff that were snorkeling just next to the boat, and he'd grab their masks and fins, and um, you know just like any of us would on a boat. And then he was he flew off to China for for a meeting. But yeah, yeah, I mean that was a moment in time where I I felt the opposite of the sort of. Dismal view that i 've often had you know working on stories like the Global fishery Story and so forth. this was a moment where, yeah, you know it 's happening, you know people are, are getting it, and we 're doing the right thing and we 're protecting places and conservation matters uh, you know I think our, our colleague David Gutenfelder had had been with uh, Obama a couple of months before, like in July or something out in in the redwoods um, again you know where where john Muir had had probably walked uh, or, or other conservationists over the years and 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 Obama was out there bringing great attention <clears throat> to these things, and um, yeah, I mean, you know, it mattered. So, so yeah, I've, I've sort of you know had both both experiences, and I guess like so many things in life, you know, the reality is maybe somewhere in the middle, and and we just have to muddle through and, and do do what we can.
0: And so, were you we, like sweating bullets during the five minutes that they gave you to grab your shit and put it <laughs> put it on the boat?
1: <laughs> I I absolutely was. It was amazing. Um, yeah, they, they, that's exactly what they said. They said, you've got five minutes. Uh, they, they drove me over in a golf cart and, um, and I had to run into my room and, you know, another little interesting backstory that I've never told, but, um, the the day before when we arrived, we we literally got off the plane at Midway. We walked in. We we didn't even go to our barracks yet. We, they hadn't even assigned us rooms, um, and and I went into this Fish and Wildlife office and I opened up my pelican cases and I took out my housings. And we were going to go snorkeling, and they said you've got like an hour to get all your stuff together. And I was putting together my camera and housing, and there was a pro- after I buttoned everything up and pulled a vacuum and was all set to go, um, there was a problem. There was some button being depressed from my housing on the camera that was rendering everything else inoperative. I couldn't use the camera. And it, it took me... Over an hour, they waited for me because I had to troubleshoot that, and I ended up taking a piece out of the housing. Um, I realized where the button was being pressed, and there was no quick solution. So I just took out some screws and removed that piece, and I didn't need it and um, And then the camera worked. but i I thought about that in horror, like I broke out in, in a cold sweat um, the next day when i after I was having dinner at the end when Obama left, I was sitting there thinking. If I hadn't made that dive the first day with Sylvia, I wouldn't have known about that problem. I wouldn't have put the stuff together and, and you know, had, and, and I would have jumped in the water potentially or, or tried to jump in the water and the camera wouldn't have worked. And that would have been like the worst thing in my life, um, you know, potentially. So, yeah, uh, both of those things were true. I, I only had five minutes because I had trouble shot the problem the day before everything came together and worked and I didn't need much time oh, that's but epic. Um, yeah just always something man it's so just,
0: uh, so keep something. speaking about keeping it together um I wanted to talk about um what what you claim is your most exhilarating or humbling animal encounter uh down in the Auckland Islands which is southwest of the southern tip of New Zealand in the sub-Antarctic with whales um can you describe that encounter and and talk about what it's like to to keep it together in moments like that and to maintain it yeah. cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks for that. Um, right. So this was, um, this was that story that I, I referenced earlier about right whales. So the story started out where I wanted to focus on the most endangered whale in the world, which is this North Atlantic right whale. And, um, In order to draw a comparison, a contrast with that beleaguered North Atlantic population, I also wanted to photograph their, their cousins, the southern right whales, you know the story is that about a million years ago there was one population of right whales on the planet. But as land masses moved around and oceans became isolated, um, the species got separated. So they're uh, genetically they're almost identical. They could easily mate and have offspring and so forth. But today there are these two populations: the North Atlantic and the and the Southern right whales. So. To draw that comparison, I could have gone to places where they had been photographed before, like Patagonia, Argentina, or South Africa, or even Australia. But I had heard about from a researcher friend of mine, this I'd heard about this new population that had been discovered a few years before in the Auckland Islands of New Zealand, the sub Um, but nobody had photographed them and only scientists had gone there and, and done research from boats from the surface. So you know, very speculative trip. I I, I ended up chartering a eighty-two foot sailboat out of Dunedin on um, the South Island of New Zealand, and with a team of scientists uh, and my assistant, we we sailed down. It was about a day and a half sail to get there in the Austral winter, so the weather was not particularly kind to us. But you know, I had three weeks, and I didn't know what we would see. I first. Didn't even know that the whales would definitely be there. I didn't know what the visibility would be like. I didn't know if they would let me close. Um, A lot of variables that were unknown. But from the moment I arrived, I I was diving alone. I I told my assistant, you know, I I think they might get spooked if even two of us are in the water, so I'm going to go first. I put on my dry suit, got in the water, and these whales just couldn't have been more curious. They, it was like the you know, the villagers came out to see us when we arrived. It was one of the rare sunny days when we got there, and we pulled up to a place called Enderby Island uh, on the sailboat, and there was white sand below us, and the water was unusually clear and you saw these giant whales you know just just kind of coming out to the boat and swimming around and i i couldn't get my my stuff on quick enough you know as i go pulling on my dry suit and you know everything was going wrong the zipper didn't work and this you know you can't get in the water fast enough so i jumped in the water and i i did that for two or three days i dove alone um and mostly up on the water column a little bit sort of near the bottom but after a few days and, and getting some stuff in the can that I felt pretty good about, uh, I said to my assistant, I said, you know, I got this picture in mind where I'd love to have a, a, a diver, a human next to the whale. And I said, you know, we, of course, we don't know if it's going to happen. The whales don't, you know, read the memos. But um, but if it does, I said, let's try to go down to the bottom. And if we get a whale to come near us, just stand there on the bottom. And, and is that and, for and scale
0: it, to show the viewer how, yeah, how big yeah. these creatures That's are? That's
1: right. Yep. I, I, I needed a reference point because so many of the whale photos that I had made in years past and, and you see from other folks, they're beautiful pictures, right? But they're often up in the water column and there's there's no scale. They're they're like these, you know, starships that are just floating in space, which is great. But um I was thinking of something a little bit different, and we even talked about like if if the whale comes near you, maybe like put a hand out. I, I said, you know, like uh, almost like you're 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 reaching out to touch him, but I don't want you to touch him. Um, but you know, something like that. So we 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 we, we sort of scripted in our our brains, you know, different ways that it might look good, not knowing, of course. And as that luck would have it, that morning I get up. And I, you know, had my coffee, and I was out on the deck, and there's no whales around. We couldn't see a single stinking whale anywhere. So finally, at about maybe 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I saw a blow on the surface out in the distance. So I talked to the Zodiac driver, and I said, look, there's a whale out there. Can, can we go out and give this a shot? So um, we jumped in the boat, and we went out there, and my assistant, Mauricio, went down to the bottom, and um, we both did. It was about 70 feet deep, and I looked up, and I could see the whale, but the whale was sort of just hanging out up there. So I think it was twice I ascended up from 70 feet with a dry suit, you know, so you're purging the air and you're doing anything. And I just went up to the surface. And I wasn't real close to him. I was probably, you know, 100 meters away or so on the surface. And then I swam back down. And the second time I got his attention and he or she uh, swam down. He was curious, you know, it's like it hadn't paid attention before, but now, it's curious uh, it got curious and it started swimming down and then it proceeded to spend maybe next to 2 hours with us on the bottom and um yeah i mean i remember bits of that experience and um you know because as all of us right you're looking through that viewfinder and you're in the zone it's like you're you're totally oblivious to everything else and I probably had I don't know 150 pounds of equipment on with a dry suit and weight belt and steel tanks and all the harnesses and everything else and carrying my camera and I remember swimming over the bottom just you know praying that I had a compact flash card in the in the in the camera that I didn't screw up and that was my very first digital camera too this was only like maybe my my uh I don't know third or fourth digital story still using the very first my first Nikon D2X camera and um you know trying to think that I, I can't don't screw this up I mean this is extraordinary I, I've never seen anything like this I, nobody's going to believe it if I don't get it Um but the whale, you know, the whale just was amazing. I remember getting tired to the point where, you know, I finally needed to catch my breath and I just knelt down in the sand thinking that whale would just leave me in its wake. But she actually turned around and came back and looked at me with this giant, you know, softball eye uh, as if to say, you know, I know you can't swim very well, I'll wait for you. Um, and then we continued on. So, um, you know, that that was in uh, 2007. The story was published in 2008. And... Um, As a a little postscript to that, um, recently, like, you know, in the last six months, for for one reason or another, I I went back to that original hard drive, which I hadn't looked at in 12 years, uh, or better part of 12 years. And I went through and I was saying to myself, you know, because I'd been thinking, I said, there there must be other near frames. You know, I must have gotten other pictures. And I have, you know, hundreds of photos from that experience But that picture that you described with my assistant standing on the bottom next to the whale is the only one like that. And it was the last frame on that dive. It was the very last picture that I made on that shoot. And all the other ones, uh, my assistant was up in the water column or swimming sort of above the whale or next to it or whatever. And there's some interesting stuff, but it's that one. And it was the last one. I mean, easily... Couldn't have happened. It might not have happened.
0: And so, what is it about that frame? I mean, it's like your assistant and the whale are looking at each other. At, and the whale, I assume, has never seen a human ever. You know, theres is it the connection <laughs> that, that the two have that seem to move
1: people yeah, so much? That, I, I think so. Um, you make a good point, right? The, the researchers that I was with said these whales have likely never seen a human being before. They had only been discovered a few years um, previous to that, discovered meaning that in this particular place there was that many of them around um and nobody had ever been in the water as far as i know so these whales never saw a human before and we were the first ones they were trying to figure out what we were so they were very curious and i think you know without really knowing i mean i I had this idea of of somebody standing on the bottom and i thought that would potentially be powerful next to a whale but you know i think there's there's Inadvertently tapped into some other part of the human psyche, perhaps that that just is is engaged by the notion of this little form, this little human silhouette standing on the bottom next to a 45-foot long, 70-ton whale, as if they're having a conversation. Um, it's it's sort of that that representation of humans and, and nature in a way that maybe hadn't been visualized. Quite that way, that that context, and you know, I can't help but think too. You know, th- these are animals. I should point out that were given the name right whale by the early whalers, uh, you know, back in the fifteen sixteen hundreds, because they were considered the right whale to kill. R I G H T, right whale, because they they moved slow and they floated after they were dead, and. You know, there were reports in New England that said that, you know, the pilgrims or early explorers, when they came over to Cape Cod, you could walk across Cape Cod Bay on the backs of right whales. They were so plentiful, and today they're the most endangered whale in the world. We have three or 400 of them left. Um, and yet, when I had that experience in New Zealand with the southern right whales, you know, you see how curious they are, and you can imagine that's what it was like in other places that, you know, you if you could go in a time machine back a few hundred years, you would see that same thing, that they would probably swim right up to you. Maybe most animals would, you know, but yeah, so I think it touched a chord.
0: And it, it also happens to be in waters that are a, a sort of a positive story. It sounds like New Zealand's conservation efforts um, are working. And, and yeah. can you talk just a little bit about, you know, how by saving one keystone species and or protecting certain waters that um, the anemone population is affected, the kelp is affected. Can you talk about the cascading effects of of conservation that have occurred in New Zealand? Yeah, you
1: bet. Yeah, really, really a great point. Um, And that's right. And, And again, for context, you know, after I did that global fisheries story, which was very depressing, um, I had photographed a little bit of solutions, you know, like aquaculture and, and so forth, and if aquaculture is done right, I think it can be a, a real solution to give wild fish a break and, um, and help feed, you know, seven or nine billion people on the planet, but um, my my plan was to, to include within the coverage in the global fishery story a bit about marine protected areas, and we discussed it at National Geographic, and it was decided with the editors and myself that we, we would do a separate story, that we would actually give it a little bit more coverage. So I went to New Zealand to do this, uh, what originally was just going to be a component of the other story, and it became its own story on marine reserves. And, you know, there are a lot of countries that I could have selected, but I went to New Zealand because they had been very progressive in, terps, in terms of protecting their their exclusive economic zone. And they had this network of marine reserves throughout the coastal region where I could dive and see different things. And most importantly, I wanted to see that restoration that had occurred, the resilience in the ocean. And this was evident in many of the places I, I saw. You know, one of the first places I went to was uh, a place called uh, the Goat Island Marine Reserve in the town of Lee which is on the North Island. And Goat Island is not really an island the way we would think of it. It's really just a rock offshore, so it's very close to shore. It's not like you have to journey out to some island that's protected. It's just a little stretch of, of rocky coastline there, um, maybe an hour's drive north of Auckland, New Zealand. And, and this is a great story. You know, the, 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 the guy who was responsible... For getting that place protected, it was a guy named Dr. Bill Ballantyne, who's really the father of marine protected areas. And it was back in like 1975 that he convinced the New Zealand government to protect this place. It's extraordinary. I mean, he had to fight against everybody, he had to fight against commercial fishing interests, um, he had to fight against recreational fishermen who used to go there to fish off the rocks for a New Zealand snapper and so forth. And he even had to fight his own fellow researchers, scientists who used to go to this place to collect specimens and species. But somehow, miraculously, he got it done and they protected that place. And and Ballantyne told me a story. He said that when we protected it, Brian, he said we expected that certain species like the New Zealand snapper, this tasty fish that a lot of people fished for, it had been fished to the brink of commercial extinction. And he said we thought that that might come back with protection, but he said there were other things that happened we couldn't have envisioned. For example, the New Zealand snapper predates on sea urchins. Well, when the fish were wiped out, the urchins just went crazy and they took over the bottom. Well, urchins eat kelp, and you never saw kelp. So for many, many years, if you poked your head beneath the waters in, in those places in New Zealand, it was what they called urchin barons, kina barons, kina, the local term for urchins. And it was just, you know, as far as you could see, covering boulders were, were sea urchins, no kelp. Well, when the place was protected, the New Zealand snapper Came back both in size and in number. They they increased their populations, and they started eating the sea urchins, controlling that population. And all of a sudden, you had kelp forests reemerging in this place. So you know, if to dive there now today might look like it looked 500 years ago or something. Um, and that's the the beauty. Now we can create a new baseline of what a healthy ecosystem in that place should look like, and we can use that as a model for conservation in other similar places. Um, so every, you know, that's what I learned uh, in, in these stories, <clears throat> particularly in New Zealand, I saw that every animal plays a vital role. You know, we we are drawn to the charismatic big creatures and so forth, but it's the little nudibranchs, it's the invertebrates, it's it's the sea urchins, it's the kelp, it's everything that that, you know, it's, I've often described it as the gears of a, a finely tuned watch, a Swiss watch, where every gear plays a role. And when you begin removing those gears, that, that watch, that clock breaks down. The machine doesn't function anymore. And, and that's what we see in so many places on land and in the ocean. But, um, but in these places that have been protected, life has been restored. The ocean does have resiliency. You know, we just got to let it do what it knows how to do and kind of keep our hands off.
0: And so so people that might be listening that aren't currently um supporting this type of journalism or supporting the oceans how how would you encourage people to to do that you know awareness is mm. one thing thoughts and prayers are great mm. but how do you encourage people to to get involved um well, and, and help know, protect that, the oceans
1: Yeah yeah thanks for that question I think the first thing to do is to sort of do what you can individually in your own life. And, and a big part of that comes down to being an informed citizen, an informed consumer, um, making informed decisions about the things that you buy and purchase or eat. Um, you know, uh, as I we, we talked about with the, the shrimp situation, you know, people gain information and then they make choices. They say, oh, I can't do that anymore. Um so it takes work unfortunately and we all live in very busy lives but you know at the moment many of us are sort of stuck at home in in a horrible situation but if we do have more time on our hands it's a good opportunity to do a little homework you know go go to websites like the Monterey Bay Aquarium or National Geographic's website and and learn about you know what seafoods are Acceptable to eat and which ones you should absolutely avoid, or maybe if you love to eat red meat, you know maybe you you cut that down to a couple of times a month or whatever, so the carbon footprint isn't as bad, whatever it might be, but you can make good choices uh based on information that you you know have digested, <laughs> no pun intended and and same thing with voting, right? I mean, we vote for people uh, on a lot of a lot of emotional reasons, but you know we're at a time where uh, the sand is running out of the hourglass. We we're at this pivotal moment in history where we we don't have much time left, uh, but we do know the answers. We we have the answers. We know the problems and the solutions, and we just have to make those choices. So so being a good citizen. But beyond that, you know, I think if if you have the wherewithal and you can support, either through, you know, volunteerism, where you get involved with uh, conservation NGOs, uh, or, or you can make donations, or you can fund journalism, um, which is greatly suffering, as we know. I mean, that's, that's, people need a, a trusted source of information today more than ever, and yet we're seeing budgets cut all the time for original reporting. Um, so, all of those things matter, but I think, um, whether it's, you know, supporting a, a large NGO worldwide or just one that's in your backyard that, you know, might be operating on a shoestring and need, needs help. But, you know, get under the covers. Figure out what they're doing. I mean, I don't necessarily believe in just sending a check and then saying, you know, I'm done, I feel good. You know, make sure that that organization, is, the money is really going to what, what it is. It's not just a, you know, vacation fund for somebody or something, that they're actually really doing the the hard work. And there's so many people out there, you know, we see doctors and nurses and EMTs and uh, first responders out there these days, you know, putting their lives on the line for, for everybody else. And um, it's, it's, it's inspiring and scary all at the same time. But, but the same kind of people, the same kind of ethic is happening out there in the front lines of, of real conservation and science, where people are out there desperately trying to save places and species, and they need help. So maybe not the best time. We're all, you know, pinching pennies. But if you have the wherewithal, and hopefully we emerge from this soon and you can do that kind of thing, then, yeah, that'll be appreciated.
0: And, and you're the author of, what, 11 books? And, and where can people find, um, you know, information about your books and, and whatnot? Where's the best spot to find your, your content, yeah, your work?
1: Um, you know, all of my books are available pretty much wherever books are sold. Um, so certainly places like Amazon or your local bookstore, if you can... We'll go with the Amazon that, right maybe. now.
0: Let's stick with Amazon. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: Let's go with Amazon.
0: They'll deliver. Um,
1: they will deliver, that's right. Don't need to go um, out to the local bookstore, which may not be open. But, um, yeah, I actually um, have a new book coming out next year on, on whales and dolphins. Um, so I'm going to be using this time, hopefully, to write that as well. But, um, yeah, they're available pretty much anywhere. And I, we sell them through my website if somebody was interested in a, an autographed copy, a signed copy, um, through my own website, bryanscary.com. Um, they're available as well, so I'm happy to do that.
0: And you're also on Instagram, at Brian Scary.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: Well, Brian, man, thank you for taking an hour, catching up and uh, talking some stories, sharing some some background ins- and insight into some of your um, most memorable images. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, this has been a real pleasure, Andy. I mean, you've got great insight and asked questions that most people never even think of. So I appreciate the time.
0: Well, thanks, man. Hunker down with your family. And uh, hopefully we all emerge from this this quarantine period soon and you get back to work. Where, where are you going back to Hawaii to shoot again? or um, what's...
1: No, I, I was there recently um, working on this Earth Day special for National Geographic and D, uh, Disney and ABC. Um, but um, I've got a little bit more work on this big whale project that I'm doing, and then I'm going to start a, a project closer to home on the Gulf of Maine.
0: All right. Well, enjoy the time at home if you can, and uh, we'll catch you down the road. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you.